Hello and welcome to Clinical Chats, a podcast of healthcare professionals. Clinical Chats, formerly known as the Family Planning Files, is a program from the Clinical Training Center for Sexual and Reproductive Health, or CTCSRH, formerly known as the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning, or NCTCFP, and is funded by the Office of Population Affairs in order to enhance the knowledge of Title X clinicians and other staff. Our guest today is Kristen Keglovitz-Baker, PAC, Associate Medical Director in Medical Affairs at Gilead Sciences and former Chief Operating Officer of Howard Brown Health Center in Chicago, which specializes in providing healthcare to the LGBTQ community. Kristen has over 16 years of clinical experience in providing sexual and reproductive health services and primary care to patients who identify as part of the LGBTQ community. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen. We're so excited to speak with you today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Just to start on our topic of health needs and disparities among trans and gender diverse persons in the U.S., approximately how many people identify as trans or gender diverse and are of reproductive age in the U.S.? And do we know how many of them seek sexual and reproductive health services every year? That's a really great question. I think that the first thing I'll say before I completely answer what we know is, you know, keeping in mind that accurate and all-inclusive data collection, especially of populations that include trans and gender diverse people, has been a challenge. I think that those challenges over the last few years have certainly gotten better as we've improved the data collection techniques to be more inclusive, but we still do have challenges in those estimates. And it's a lot of the times due to the way that we collect data, which is typically very heteronormative, very binary. What we do know is when we utilize the data from the CDC's behavioral risk uh, factor surveillance system that estimates the percentage and number of adults who identify as transgender nationally and in all 50 states here in the U.S., we believe that about 0.6% of U.S. adults identify as transgender. And it's important to note that because this figure that's been recently estimated is double the estimate that utilized data from roughly a decade ago. And that implies that approximately about 1.4 million adults in the U.S. identify as transgender. I think when we start to expand that out to gender diverse people and other identities, it gets poorer and poorer in the way data is collected. And so some of that doubling of the estimate is not truly that there's more trans people living in the U.S. It's Some of it is due to data collection efforts. Some of it is due to people's comfort level and being able to identify as such. But just to note that those limitations have really been based on the way we collect data in the past. What are some health disparities that are particularly seen in trans and gender diverse patient populations in the U.S.? And do we see differences in these disparities across say, geographic regions, racial or ethnic groups, ages, etc.? We definitely see the intersection and the cross-section of how um, different policy impacts the, the lives and the health of people, and I'll get into that in a minute. When we talk about health disparities among trans and gender diverse patients, some of the things that we have to think about is when health is really at the core of so many things that impact um, human and social uh, rights for those people in, the, in this country. And so when we think about things like discrimination, violence, stigma, along with other social determinants of health, we know that those significantly 
significantly affect the physical, mental, and behavioral health of transgender and gender diverse people in the U.S. We also know from the evidence that compared with the general population, transgender people uh, do suffer from more chronic health conditions and experience higher rates of health problems related to areas such as HIV, substance use, mental illness, sexual and physical violence, as well as higher prevalence and earlier onset of disabilities that can also lead to health issues. And I always say that it sort of is a little bit of the chicken or the egg, right? It's not that people that are trans or gender diverse necessarily have more of these things. It's that because they're impacted so much in the areas of discrimination, violence, and stigma, as well as social acceptance, we know that that leads to poor health outcomes. And to your question around geographic regions or racial or ethnic groups, this is very, very prominent where we see that health policy and law in areas of the country where uh, basic human rights, uh, such as healthcare access, and there's discrimination that's put in place through policy and law in those areas where there are less rights, we do see those health disparities increase. And so geographically, for instance, if we think about access to healthcare in the areas where there is more open access to healthcare in the U.S., we definitely see some of those health disparities decrease. And in areas where there's um, political as well as laws around that discriminate against trans people, we see those health disparities increase. And so when we think about, you know, the overlapping identities, compounding those disparities. For example, uh, Black transgender women are facing multiple layers of identities that are not prioritized or often embraced by society. And then you top that with um, racism on top of transphobia, and you see that we see very high rates of violence and death as well as health disparities, including HIV. And that's just one of the many examples of the different facets of the uh, trans and gender diverse populations where we see huge health disparities and a big call to action and need to be able to increase not only access to health services, but competent access and you know, ability for clinicians and systems to really serve these populations in the way that we serve others. Kind of going back to what you said at the beginning, a little bit about laws, policies as factors that have contributed to those health disparities. Could you elaborate a little bit on that as well as other factors that have contributed to health disparities among trans and gender diverse populations in the U.S.? Certainly. As I discussed in the beginning of our talk, you know, the health system and society is definitely, you know, set up in a, in a very gender non-binary way. And when it doesn't fit some of those, you know, boxes, it really is difficult sometimes for our health system to adapt and to be able to serve people. And so when we give off a notion that we don't include people, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, turns people off. And especially in trans and gender diverse communities, there's things that are from outright discrimination and disrespect, you know, where there's been reports and in the published data that they've been told that, you know, certain health systems don't necessarily have expertise in the area of caring for them, even though they may have been coming in for an unrelated issue. It can lead to all the way from that to other reasons that could include things like discomfort with the physical exam due to gender issues. Because of those um, disparities we talked about and those overlapping identities, lack of money or insurance, more likely to be uninsured or underinsured. People in the community in the published data reporting that they didn't have a medical provider that they were comfortable with and comfortable with being their whole selves and talking about what they need. When we talk about sexual and reproductive health, one of many examples is, you know, a healthcare provider maybe not knowing uh, what anatomy they do have or, and not asking, and then maybe having certain exams um, overlooked because of that. So there's definitely a lot on that area. On the other end, we also know that there is often a lack of providers, healthcare providers who are sufficiently knowledgeable on the topic. So it can be lack of training in the area, um, not having knowledge about how to care for the community. And, and when we don't know how to do something, we tend to sometimes just kind of put it to the side or step away from it or uh, have fear about asking about it in, in regard to maybe be not wanting to offend someone. And so what ends up happening is that 
people in the community sometimes don't get the care that they uh, should and could deserve because of that lack of knowledge in that area. The common barriers that trans patients face trying to get not just sexual and reproductive health care, but again, you mentioned perhaps that unrelated to specifically being trans, but that primary care, access to that care. What are some of those common barriers that we see from the societal level to the organizational level to even kind of that one-to-one client-provider relationship that patients often face or you've read about in the literature? Definitely. I mean, so if we take every type of barrier and we can relate it back to, you know, when I was in practice, one of the things that I always talked about was that there's a lot of things that are taken for granted about how much it takes for a person to access healthcare, right? So it's besides just, you know, are you comfortable with your provider? Do you feel welcome in the waiting room? What did it look like this morning for you to get here? You know, what does transportation-wise look like? In the trans and gender diverse community, there's a whole other group of things, which could be everything from what is my ID show? And am I going to get asked questions in the waiting room as compared to, you know, who I am as a person? And have I changed that on my ID to reflect that? What does my medical insurance say? Am I going to be mispronounced in the waiting room? Um, if I'm taking public transportation on the way there, you know, did I have a bad experience or was I discriminated against or looked at in a different way. And so there's a lot of things that, you know, we see sometimes as maybe a simple medical appointment. But when we think about sort of all those barriers and just living and walking a day in the life of someone who's transgender diverse, it really starts, you start to realize very quickly at how um, that isn't always easy for people. And so when you think of that, and then you sort of think about also just our healthcare system in general and how for people who don't have um, all of those barriers and are more accepted by society, how, you know, there's even still an existence of the medical system seeming, you know, sometimes kind of scary or something that we're not able to sort of access or it's not welcoming. Um, when you add that into the trans and gender diverse population, I think you really start to see easily um, what can sort of happen and why it leads to lack of access to care, as well as lack of uh, persistence of going to care. Another thing that we see often and we hear reports on um, from the different surveys that have been done, as well as community reports from the trans community, is that, you know, sometimes one bad experience leads to sort of a dismantling of them not wanting to enter the system again. So meaning what I mean by that is, you know, they maybe had one bad experience somewhere, but they're not willing to have go through that trauma again. And rightfully so, feeling like I'm not going to go through that, even if it's a different system. Then we get into the areas of where when we think about trans specialty care, you know, meaning there's these, you know, centers across the country that sort of specialize in transgender care, but often those are based in urban settings. And so if you're someone who's not living near one of those, you know, can you go to sort of a regular system of care? And even when that happens, you know, what are they able to provide versus what if I need to go to a specialist? That's a whole other level of, okay, I, you know, feel comfortable with my primary care provider, but when it comes to specialists, you know, I have a whole other, now I have to go through all that again, you know, making sure they know who I am. And the amount of people that someone interacts with on a daily basis in a healthcare system, the simple things that we may see as simple and not a big deal are big, big deals to people, you know, everything from mispronouning to not using the right name to having, you know, stairs in the waiting room. So there's lots of things that kind of come up when it comes to that. And so you start to, as you bring all of those things together, you start to easily see going back to those health disparities, why this occurs, right? And so if we don't tackle it, in my opinion, at sort of a, a we have to tackle it at an individual level. So, you know, how do we make sure that the workforce is educated, informed, open, affirming, then 
we think about, you know, how do we make sure our systems, you know, meaning waiting room, physical systems, signage, bathrooms, et cetera. And then we move into technology, right? You know, how do we make sure um, the computer system, the electronic health record? So there's many, many, many facets of things that have to go right. And I think our system historically just hasn't been set up that way. And so since it hasn't been set up that way, there's lots of opportunities for errors or mistakes, but those errors or mistakes can lead then to a disengagement from the system because it causes trauma in their life or it's causing sort of discrimination or feeling like they're not welcome somewhere. And that can be um, a huge issue that then leads to maybe pushing care off for a longer amount of time, which we know, especially if it's preventive care, can lead to then uh, more reactive health care, diagnostic health care, can lead to uh, people feeling like they're just not going to re-engage and they're going to put that off, which we know then also leads to higher morbidity and mortality when it comes to that. And then lastly, I'll say on this topic that, you know, because I truly believe that healthcare is the center of sort of society, meaning that being that I do believe it's a basic human right and it's at the center of wellness, meaning that when you have good health, right, you are then able to go out and work. You're able to go out and do the things you love. You're able to socialize. And so if you have that core center, which is where you don't maybe have access to healthcare or you don't have access to affirming healthcare or you don't have access to the very needs that you need the very most in your life, you start to see that those other things that you're trying to get done in your life to live a happy, full life start to also be impacted. And that's where I always say that the root of it, especially for trans and gender diverse people, and we see that in the literature, is the most important things to them includes something that overlaps with health. And so be able to be able to live their fully fulfilling life and happy life, they have to be able to have that access to healthcare at the center. And I think that that's been something that has been definitely a barrier for this community in particular. If you can kind of elaborate and go in depth about what clinics and service sites and organizations can do to address some of those barriers, you know, again, on the organizational level to address those barriers and disparities, such as providing specialized outreach or staff training, things like that, what can they do? So, I mean, I think that first, the way that I always talk about it is don't think of it as a destination because when it comes to trans and gender diverse care, the minute you think you've met your destination, it's probably already moving in a way that you need to adapt to. And so what I think of it as um, when I'm talking to organizations about how to get to a place they want to get to when it comes to really addressing some of these barriers and improving the way that they serve the trans community, it is really looking at it on a constant basis and integrating it into the culture. And so first and foremost, you know, looking at your environment of care. So being intentional as you're um, looking at your physical facilities, you know, what does the imagery look like on your walls? Um, what is the bathrooms access? What is the signage that you have up? Are any of those things going to give an impression of inclusivity that, you know, I'm a trans or gender diverse patient and I'm included here and I've been thought of and I'm not an afterthought or am I just someone that is an afterthought for you and I actually don't know how I belong? So those little things at the very front um, can be a big thing. As you mentioned, intentional outreach, right? Making a statement to say, you know, we want you here and we are intentionally knowing that there is health disparities in your community and we want you to live a healthy life. And we're, re we're doing proactive outreach to say, please come in. We want to care for you. We want to be the one that provides care for you. And I think that that, you know, can go a long way. When we think about staff training, um, a lot of times I think that what happens is people go through kind of the basics. So they might go through a pronoun training or they're going through kind of a very basic transgender 101. But I really believe going back to that culture conversation, it has to be integrated into all facets. So it has to be in the leadership. It has to be, 
you know, obviously the most obvious place is providers and clinicians get trained, but you know, what does it look like for the front desk staff? How does it look for the maintenance staff? What does it look like for the person that might be um, assisting you from one place to the other throughout the facility? So it's really has to be, I think, integrated into the culture that that's important. Um, some of the areas that I think have been really successful is making sure that that organizations are being intentional about how do you hire from community. So a lot of times, and when you do hire from community, making sure that it's not just the outreach worker who's doing trans outreach who's trans, but does your leadership have people that are trans or gender diverse on it? Um, do you have clinicians that are trans or gender diverse? So looking across your organization and really thinking about intentional ways to hire from community. Because when I when you think about that, it's not only a way to bring people in and be inclusive, it's also a way to help the the health of the population because you're providing employment services and being able to do that as well. And then another thing that I think is really important is in addressing some of these barriers and disparities on the organization level is, you know, forming sort of a community advisory group or a board to be able to bounce ideas off of and get constant feedback so that you can kind of have your hand on the pulse of, you know, if you're really saying we're patient-centered, how do I then make sure that I'm getting that feedback from the very people I'm serving so that they can tell me, hey, you did great here, but you really fell short here. And this is something you're going to have to really continue to work on. And so I think can, can that continuous need and want for improvement is a really important part of sort of addressing some of those barriers and disparities. Title 10 clinicians may not necessarily be providing medical transition care. As Title 10, the entire mission is about preventing or achieving healthy pregnancy and related services. Uh, so that might not be in their scope of work, but they may see patients who do want to prevent or achieve a healthy pregnancy or for other health needs who may be receiving transition-related care elsewhere, such as from their primary care provider. What should clinicians in Title X settings and other sexual and reproductive health settings then keep in mind when they are seeing those patients who, for instance, may be taking hormones or are planning to or have received gender affirmation surgery when they're providing those services. One of the things we know is that in the data and the literature, as well as in multiple community surveys, that trans and gender diverse people tell us over and over and over again that gender affirming care is at the center of what's most important to them. And that that is not that word of gender affirming care doesn't always mean it means a lot of different things for different people. For some people, it means hormones. For some people, it means surgery. For some people, it means nothing other than affirming who they are and has no medical aspect to it. And I mentioned that because even if the medical transition care isn't part of their scope of work, it's really prioritizing what's most important to the patient first. And so for many people, you know, transitioning is just one aspect of their life, right? And seeing, I think sometimes the transgender and gender diverse um, community is often seen only for their identity rather than, you know, their holistic health needs that they have. And so I think as Title Ten clinicians are thinking about that, how do you provide support to them even if you aren't the one prescribing their hormones is instrumental in their whole person care? Because I think it creates not only more trust in the medical system for a community that has often, for good reason, not had good reason to trust the system, but also, you know, how can they uh, connect with the person that maybe is prescribing or providing their gender affirming um, transition care, or maybe they're um, the person that is uh, doing the sexual reproductive health services for them. But again, thinking of it as that holistic um, in mind that all the things we talked about a little while ago, what does the environment of care look like at a Title X clinic? What, it, what are the ways they're continuously getting training to make sure they get it right, to make sure people feel affirmed and comfortable? Because it's not, you know, what we hear often uh, from community 
is that they feel like when they go to a place that was meant for them, meaning like a health center that says we serve trans people, they're like, well, yes, this intention was made. But when I go anywhere else, it doesn't feel that way. And I think it goes back to that culture change, which is that we have to integrate it into all cultures, not just in the specialty places that are providing transition care. Um, so those are some of the ideas that I have. Are there other considerations Title X clinicians should be aware of when providing services, kind of more of those related services, such as cancer screenings, uh, mental health screenings, STI testing treatment for trans and gender diverse patients, especially related to those disparities that we discussed earlier in the podcast? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think continuously educating yourself um, and keeping in mind how to ask in a really sensitive, affirming way about body parts. So that's a really important part is, you know, the how. How do you take an affirming sexual history and doing so in a way that doesn't feel stigmatizing or judgmental is really key. I think dedicating time to getting trained in these areas is critical and then committing to that ongoing training. Beside ongoing training, committing to ongoing learning, right, is that, you know, we often sometimes think as clinicians because we're trained scientifically that everything fits sort of in a box, right? But I think that it's, again, goes back to this destination. It's definitely more of a journey of how do I continuously improve in this area? How do I continuously be open? How do I continuously be um, affirming? And when I'm thinking about things like cancer screenings or STIs, testing, because both of those are often based on anatomy, getting really, really good at how do I uh, inquire in a sensitive and affirming way so that people know that I'm talking about body parts because I want to make sure I do the right cancer screening because I want to do the correct body part STI testing, not because I'm curious, not because I'm trying to figure something out, um, not because I'm you know being judgmental, but that it's, um, and not because they're trans, right? That it's something that when I say I ask all people, all patients this, that I mean that. And I think that those are um, some of the things that are really important to keep in mind. What are some good places for clinicians to learn more about health disparities to provide that very intentional care we discuss to patients who may identify as trans or gender diverse? What are some good places you recommend? I mean, I think there's many resources, thankfully, that, you know, are, are can be really great places to go for resources. If you're a clinician who you want to learn about health disparities, but you also want to learn how to provide better care, you want to look at the literature, you want to know the how-to. Some of those examples are the UCSF has a great website for the Transgender Center of Excellence, and it's really a resource that guides clinicians in caring for trans and gender diverse people. There's also the National LGBTQIA Education Center that Fenway Health runs, and they have a resource online as well as training that you can participate in to get to improve your skills in this area. The National Center for Transgender Equality also has a lot of resources to help clinicians. There's also um, a resource called the TransLine that you can actually inquire to another clinician who has a lot of experience in transgender care and send in particular questions you might have or cases that you may want some input on. And then also just, you know, continuously looking at uh, conferences and different areas where you may be able to engage to continue to uh, provide care uh, to these communities. Those are some of the many that come to mind. Somewhat similarly, are there good resources for clinicians to give or refer specifically their trans and gender diverse patients in order to provide more information about their own sexual and reproductive health, resources that are directed and made especially for these communities? So some of the ones I mentioned above also have patient and community-centered parts of their websites and resources. Um, but there's also some areas like some, especially in the areas of telehealth and some of the 
different ways to provide care. Their websites, so two that come to mind are Plume and Folks Health, where um, they really also have great parts of their organization as well as resource that is really focused on people being informed about their own sexual and reproductive health issues so they can go in as an informed consumer. They can know what their needs are, know what they need to ask for in case it's not proactive. And then all the ones I mentioned above are definitely or earlier are um, definitely also ones that can be great resources for patients as well. Well, this has been a wonderful, informative conversation, but unfortunately, all good things do have to come to an end. But before we say goodbye today, if you could give our clinician listeners just one final sort of takeaway, the one thing you really want them to remember as they return to their practice, what would it be? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, I think as I reflect, even on talking today, I get really passionate about this because I provided care for so long to these communities. And it's something that I just feel so deeply committed to. And so, you know, some of the final takeaway advice I would give is, you know, first, just deeply commit to treating trans and gender diverse people as the beautiful people they are Um, and seeing trans people as whole people with many intersecting identities and needs and more than just their transition care. I think committing to constantly learning as um, the field and the community is so diverse and vibrant and constantly changing. And so just thinking of it as a journey Um, and committing yourself to lifelong constant learning and an openness to adapting your approach and practice and getting feedback. And lastly, you know, just really going back to that buzzword of patient-centered care. But I think as we think about this community, if we're putting the patient at the very center, then knowing that their priorities and their care are most important to me. And so whatever's most important to me is ultimately what I need to be able to be prioritizing for them, right? And that ultimately, that's my ultimate goal is that if I can walk away from an experience and say that I've done everything I can to put their needs first instead of my own agenda or my own needs, I've really had some success. And so just really inspiring any listeners to not think of this as all specialty care, thinking of it as that all clinicians, if we think about it from a trans or gender diverse framework, we really have then succeeded. And I think that that is, is something that's really, really important and, and, and beautiful and special. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kristen, and for sharing your time and expertise. For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for Clinical Chats or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcsrh.org. While you're there, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Clinical Connections, at the top of the page. You can also follow the Clinical Training Center for Sexual and Reproductive Health on Twitter at ctcsrh, all lowercase, and on LinkedIn. The CTCSRH is funded by the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees, subrecipients, and service sites, and is supported by DHHS Grant Number 5, FPTPA 006031-02-00. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or medical advice or endorsement of specific products. Opinions expressed herein are the views of the contributors and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement by DHHS, OASH, and or OPA is intended or should be inferred.
Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of Clinical Chats.